see people present that are obviously interested in um, the teachings of the church on marriage and I'm hoping that not only on a human level one can say that they're interested in the church on they're interested in the teachings of the church on marriage but also on salvation because that's the purpose of our life salvation This talk is very, very important. I feel that not much actually is available in English on marriage. There are some books, but most of the books are on monastics. Most of the books are on ascetics, but not much on the married life, and that's not good. Married people tend to read more books on monasticism, what they do on marriage life, and as a result of that, they become confused and they think that their life is eating bread and water because the saints used to have bread and water, so they, they try to have bread and water or they do silly things and really extensive prayers or stay up all night and do prostrations and can't take care of their children or can't take care of their spouses or have fights and arguments and many other things which we'll talk about now. But, you know, as Orthodox Christians... You have to try, and that's why it's good that a lot of you came today, to try and hear and obtain as much as you can on the married life. Saint Ignatius Branchinov, which is a Russian saint, he spoke very negatively against people who do not read material which is for them. For example, if someone lives in a monastery, he he was against them reading books about uh, the ascetics who lived in the desert on their own because then the one in the monastery, his mind starts to fly and he starts thinking that, oh, I'm not going to be saved here in the monastery, I've got to go and become an ascetic. The ascetics, he was against who, the ascetics who read books on those in lived in the monastery because then he would want to leave his ascetical life in the desert or in the caves, wherever he was, in the forest, and want to go to a monastery and say, oh, that's the way to be saved. Married people do the same thing. Um, we tend to read, the married people tend to read books on monastics or on ascetics and the whole thing becomes a mess. And many problems that occur today in the Orthodox Church with regards to marriage comes from this type of bias. Too much on the monastic, 
too much on the asceticism and on the ascetic on the ascetics, I should say, and hardly nothing on the married life. So, there are some excellent books which I recommend. St. John Chrysostom on, married, on marriage and family life. I'm going to be basing a lot of the talk on this. This is an excellent book. At least that exists because St. John, we can talk about him. And also some other books which I'll be giving you a book out tonight on, married, on, on marriage. So, I will attempt. It's a very difficult topic. I might get confused at times because um, it's so deep and such a great topic. Even if people might go, oh, married life, but these are the greatest topics are on monastics and the greatest topics are on um, martyrdom and the ascetics. Married life is, is not much, but that's not how it is, as you'll see. So, it is natural for a man and a woman to have a what's called an attraction to each other. Now, some saints are in two minds, and some say that marital relations would have occurred in paradise even if Adam and Eve didn't fall. And there's other fathers who say, no, marital relations, in other words, um, sexual um, intercourse, only would occur only occurred after the fall, after Adam and Eve fell. And there's all these differences of opinions, and I don't really want to really get into what, which is which. Let's just go on with what's it. I'm not that theologically enlightened to be able to understand that. I mean, there are a lot, a lot of things written on that. As I said, some great saints actually said no, that sexual intercourse would have occurred in paradise. And some say, no, 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 it only would have only occurred after the fall, after Adam and Eve. And there's difference of opinions within the church. And I'm going to be researching that more to find out, well, what is the consensus? What is the, you know, what does everyone believe most of all? And not just what exception here. I mean, you might have some saints that, are, that, are, that have exceptions. Some saints might speak on a certain topic, but it doesn't mean that because he's a saint that we have to believe what he says. It's only if what he says is in agreement with the whole church. If he agrees or she agrees with the whole church, then we can accept it. But if it doesn't agree with the consensus of the church, then we can put it to the side. So there is this magnetism between a man and a female which God has put into the soul so as to encourage um, children. Now remember that God said to Adam and Eve when he created them, multiply. And some people say, see, he said that before they ate the apple and they fell and, the, and, and, and we had the, what's called the, the fall. And because God said to them multiply, some fathers say, well, multiply how? It has to be done through relationship, through a physical relation. And others say, no, no, that God would have used another method, another way of doing it. So there's this whole different thing. So, but in general, we know that a male and female do have this physical emotional, spiritual attraction to, towards each other. And this has been put into them, and that's obvious. St. Paul, 
who the church calls the mouth of Christ. In other words, whatever St. Paul writes, it's as if Christ said it. That's how great we have St. Paul. And he, in his epistles, two of them, the, two, his two epistles to the Corinthians and one to the Ephesians, he wrote a lot about marriage and virginity. A lot about that. Then we have St. John Chrysostom, who the church calls the mouth of St. Paul. So when St. John Chrysostom speaks, it's as if St. Paul speaks. And St. John Chrysostom, he also would, he, pre, he preached quite a lot, three topics. He had three main topics that he preached about as a priest and as a bishop, as patriarch later on. The first one was how to use wealth. He really spoke about uh, riches, money, almsgiving, etc., etc. That was his main topic. I'm not going to go into that because that's another topic. The other one was the correct attitude towards entertainment. Because in that time, remember, they just the, the church came out of a period of um, paganism and there was still a lot of practices there. There was theatre and then there was the chariots and then there was this and that, all these different types of entertainment, which the Christians, even though they had converted, were still partaking of certain pagan entertainments and practices. And he spoke a lot about that. That's another topic which is good to talk about another time. And the last one, he's, one of his main topics was relationships between husband and wife. In other words, marriage. Both St. Paul and St. John Chrysostom were not embarrassed, did not blush. In other words, they didn't go red. They weren't like um, really uh, scared to speak about these matters. They went and spoke about detail, about sexual relationship and things like that. They had no problems with that. Why? Because in their mind, it's part of life. They were not at all embarrassed. Now, um, actually, St. John Chrysostom, when he would preach in Constantinople to all those thousands of people that were present, he used to say... I suppose some of you are saying, how can I speak about such topics? Don't you have any shame, etc.? And St. John Chrysostom said that to himself, and he answered them and said, no, I don't have any shame. It's you are the ones, he actually said to the people, that have the warped minds. So that's how St. John Chrysostom's attitude was towards those matters. He did not think that it was an embarrassing topic. And that's what we're trying to do today is to look at a topic which has been completely distorted from TV, books, films, etc., etc. And unfortunately, all of us, because I used to watch TV when I was younger, and a lot of you still do, and read things and go places and universities or books or newspapers, and the majority of the things that they say you know, are wrong completely alien to the Orthodox Church. And a lot of you people, adults, have been influenced by that, and the, and the children of today are even worse, because some of you that are adults now didn't have that much material available in your days. The internet only came about in the 1990s around there somewhere, and, but now the young kids have that internet and they have seen and heard and read and been, they've been exposed to so much more than what we did when we were younger. As a result of that, those poor kids, I would have to say, are, are sick. They've got a distorted view on sex, on relationships, on men, on women, husband, wives, family, marriage, the whole thing. It's all distorted.
Therefore, these talks are important to put to try and correct that, even though it's really hard, but we only can trust in God that will actually help people to actually see that, to, sorry, to reject that, that stuff that the secular uh, world gives us and accept that which is from God, to accept that which is from his church, because whatever is from the church is from God. Now, you might say, but a person, a priest, can say wrong. That's correct. That's why we say from the church. The priest is of the church, but it doesn't mean that everything he says is from the church. He can make mistakes. That's why we have to read, look at what is the teaching of the church on these topics. Read modern-day Holy Fathers on the topic. St. John, in, in, his, in, his, in his sermons on marriage, he mostly used the epistles of St. Paul, as I said, his two epistles to the Corinthians and, to, to the, and one to the Ephesians there. That's what he based his teaching on marriage on. Remember, I don't know if some of you know, but to show you the relationship of St. John Chrysostom with St. Paul, St. John Chrysostom, sorry, there was a, St. John Chrysostom was waiting for a man to come to visit him, to discuss something. And he came, and his cell attendant, St. John's cell attendant, said, just wait a minute, I'll see if the bishop is available. So he looked in and saw St. John with a man there. The man was talking to him, whispering something in his ear. So the man came back the next day, and the same thing happened the next day. And then St. John Chrysostom came out to his cell attendant and said to him, Where's this? I've been waiting for this man for so many days. He goes, oh, he came, but I didn't want to disturb you because you had someone with you in the room. And he goes, there was no one in the room, said St. John Chrysostom. So then he was wondering, well, how did this man look? He was baldish, etc., etc. And then it was realised that it was St. Paul who was invisibly there so that while St. John Chrysostom was interpreting his epistles, because St. John Chrysostom was actually reading St. Paul's epistles, and he was trying to get more of the meaning out of them. And what was happening was that his cell attendant was saw that St. Paul was whispering in the ear. In other words, he was enlightening St. John Chrysostom of how to understand the epistles. Remember that a lot of Protestants and other faiths, etc., they don't have this uh, awe and, and, and belief that the church is the interpreter of the Gospels and epistles. They believe that everyone can interpret them as they feel. That's what they believe. That's, that, that's their business. I'm not here to judge them, telling you what they do. In the Orthodox Church, we don't do that. So, for example, if someone says to me tonight, put up my hand and says, Oh, Father, can you explain to me... Uh, what it means on Luke chapter 2, number line number 10, for example. I'll look at it, and I'll say, no, I can't. And they'll say, why not? Because I have to read the interpretations. I cannot just read and just say at the top of my head what I believe. I have to look at what the church fathers, who were pure, enlightened, full of grace, I mean, they believe that about Billy Graham, for example. They believe that he's a great preacher. 
that's that's their business. Okay, well, if they believe that Billy Graham can be enlightened and can give um, interpretations to Scripture, we've got our saints who are holy, miracle workers, enlightened. And remember what the saints wrote over in Spain. And if another saint wrote something in Russia, another saint wrote something in Japan or whatever, we look at what they all come in agreement with, and that's what the church accepts. Actually, St. John's interpretations are accepted by the church as authority. That they are excellent. There's volumes of them, of St. John's interpretations of the Gospels and St. Paul's epistles and St. Peter's epistles, etc. So I won't... Do I, I will answer things if I know what the interpretation is. If I don't know what it is. Now, some of you might ask, well, if that's the case, should we read the gospel? Because we know the Holy Fathers say Christians should read the gospel, even that much, every single day, that much, that much, whatever. They must read the gospel every day, the, 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 especially the New Testament, epistles, etc. If we're not allowed to interpret them, then why should we read them? Because we're not necessarily interpret them as we go but we are reading them and we are becoming sanctified by the word of God we are bringing down God's grace into us we are being enlightened and then when we do read in conjunction with that the holy fathers listen to sermons read the writings of saints and lives of saints it all begins to become take um shape for example I've been in the church for many years uh, there are so many things in here I just do not understand. There is just so much full, actually. Like uh, I read things because we, you know, we serve every day and we read the gospel every day. And then uh, as I'm reading, I go, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. Uh, I think I remember that. I think I understand that part. But a lot of things I don't understand. And um, But we have to ask God to give us enlightenment to understand. We have to have humility. We don't just... Uh, act as if we're just proud beasts and sit there and, and with pride and say that means this and that means that and this means that I understand that that's that, that's pride that's alien I mean even the 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 eunuch I think he was when he was when he when he in the Acts of the Apostles he said to um Apostle Philip if I remember right what does it mean what does this I'm reading Isaiah what does it mean you know, we have the Holy Fathers going to, into the desert to, to enlightened spiritual fathers to say, what does that mean? What does this mean? So we have to ask God to enlighten us. And sometimes, after 15 years, 20 years, oh, I've always wanted to know what that means, and it can't, I come across it in a book, or it just makes sense from the lives of saints. Always check, of course, to make sure. We don't set ourselves up as an authority, but we always humble ourselves asking God for enlightenment. And that's what St. John did. He was a very humble soul. And he knew that his understanding of the Gospels, the Epistles, is darkness. The saints, the more they're enlightened, the more they believe that they are darkened. How can that be? Because they counted their, whatever they understood, whatever they were able to offer to the church, they understood as being not from them, but from God. Their humility was so great that they would say, God, only you know 
the, the truth, you are the truth, give me the understanding so that I can understand. So this is uh, where a lot of us go wrong, that we lack the humility and believe that we are uh, ecumenical councils in, our, in, in ourselves, like we are authorities, and that's not how it works. Now, what's, what, what was the first miracle that Christ, what's recorded that Christ did? Of course, his whole life was a miracle, but what's the first miracle which the church says was that Christ performed? And that was the wedding at Cana. Thank you. That's correct. The wedding at Cana was the first miracle. Why not something else? Why was that the basis? Why was that the first miracle? God made man and woman, Adam and Eve. So the beginning of the Holy Bible, the beginning of uh, the book of Genesis, is the creation of man and woman, and that God joined them together and told them, be fruitful and multiply. Christ's first miracle was at the wedding, whereby he changed the water into wine. He blessed that marriage by his presence. And that is very significant for us today on a talk about marriage. So John Chrysostom, when I read a bit of his book, he actually says marriage is not evil, but adultery and fornication is evil. In other words, sexual relations outside of marriage, that's evil. Within marriage, he says it's not evil. Well, why does he say that? Because maybe there was people at that time who were saying that it is. It's dirty, it's this, it's disgusting, it's all these other things that people say, and we'll come to that, how the church dealt with those people. Actually, St. Augustine, which is a Western saint, but still an Orthodox saint, he had that view. He had some strange views. But he still recognised as a holy father of the church because he didn't ram it down people's throats and he didn't spread it when the church was telling him not to say anything. He wrote it. He wrote some things. Many other saints wrote things too that were wrong. But if the church, if the church as a whole said this is wrong, they would say, I reject it. If the church says it's wrong, I reject it. But sometimes these, the, the, these saints died and it was only discovered later on that what they wrote was wrong. And it is interesting that even though that's so, they still became saints because they didn't do it out of pride but out of ignorance. The saints are not perfect in their teachings. The church is perfect. And what the church accepts from a say, as I said, we could be um, St. Basil's work. The church takes that and says, the whole, the whole church says, this is an authority. This is 100% correct. Things like that. Actually, it was the church which said which of the gospels are correct. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it was the church which said which of the epistles are correct. And the, and the, and the Protestants, for example, who 
they say that they believe in the Bible, which they, you know, they obviously, they do have that as an authority. But when you ask them, but where did, who put the Bible together? Who put the Bible together? It was the church that put the Bible together. It was the church which determined which gospel of Matthew, because in those times there was epistles of this and epistles of that, and there was, um, oh, it was all different things going on. And no one knew, well, which one's correct? Um, you know, here's a gospel of Mark. Is that the correct one? Or is that one the correct? And the church got together through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and determined once and for all which books are valid, which books are correct, and they gave us the Holy Bible, and if I remember correct, that was done, I don't know, I can't remember. I think it was 5th century, but don't quote me, I'm, you know, I'm not the Oracle of Delphi, I can't know everything, but it's just something along those, along those lines. So, what did St. Augustine believe? and those after who, who followed his teaching, they spread the opinion that sexual relations amongst men and women are evil in themselves, but tolerated within marriage for the purpose of having children. It's only tolerated for having children, but in general, it's a I don't know, filthy practice. I don't know, but that's what, that's what they... And, you know, the Catholic Church, um, they do have that type of mentality. Why? That's why they banned their priests of actually getting married. None of their priests are allowed to get married. Why? Well, because they couldn't, according to St. Augustine, which they actually acknowledge one of their greatest saints of the Catholic Church, even though he's our saint too, before the schism, but they still have him as a great saint. Because of this type of teaching, this mentality about sex, they took that on, they went to the extreme, and they started to say that, oh, how can a priest indulge in such things and then serve liturgy? Banned. And they don't allow their clergy to marry. While in the Orthodox Church, it is an option which someone can take. They can become a married priest or they can become an unmarried priest. That is free. Only the Church did uh, formulate the rule that bishops which were allowed to get married in the beginning, later on, I forgot what century, that was that they're not allowed to get married either. So, the Orthodox Church does not have that view in general. In general, the Orthodox Church does not look at it like that, even though there are some people who tend towards that. Even today, you can speak to some priests in Greece and you can speak to others that actually can go towards that mentality that, um, oh, no, yeah, this, that, they just all over the place about it. They become quite agitated on the topic, while others that I've spoken to are very uh, good. Now, that can be even monastic, say, uh, monastic fathers, ones that aren't married. They can be married um, spiritual fathers who are okay. Some married ones are completely lost about it, while other married ones are not. Some monastic fathers are go a bit berserk about it, while others don't. So there is a bit of a difference of opinion amongst the Orthodox on this topic, but in general, the Orthodox Church does not look at it like that. St. John says, It is not sex which is evil, but excessive attachment to the affairs of the world, 
Whether single or married, St. John Christum says, one can pursue holiness and seek the kingdom of heaven, whether you're married or not married. Now, there's, I did say something in that part, and some of you might have missed it, which I will come to in a, in a minute. I'll read it again and then see. It is not sex which is evil, but excessive attachment to the affairs of the world, whether single or married, one can pursue holiness and seek the kingdom of heaven. We'll come to that. There's a special part in that which is really important, which explains the whole thing. St. John uh, Chrysostom was a... Uh, he, never, he never had a father. I don't know when his father passed away, but he was brought up by his mother. So he never really experienced family life properly. Yeah? Mother, father. And also, he became an, a, uh, a monk very early, very young, and he led a life, he led an ascetic life. But later on, he became sick, and he had to leave the desert and come back to the world. In the beginning, St. John wrote a book called On Virginity. In that book, his writings were very much kind of more positive towards uh, the life of virginity, not very positive towards the married life. And the, some people say that could be because of the fact that he never really, he never really was part of a family with a husband and wife, a mother and father, as well as the fact that he led a very strict ascetical life. He never really had experience of married people. But later on, he actually became a priest in Antioch, and later on, patriarch in Constantinople. At a time as a priest and as a time as a patriarch, he started to have to deal with married people. He had to get involved with them, help them, talk to them, pray for them, problems, etc. Like there's problems now, there was problems then. And he got really much involved. And by that involvement that he had with them, he started to see that his view was not really balanced on marriage. He was a bit negative towards it, but as time went on, believe it or not, he became one of the greatest defenders of of marriage in the church. So we have to understand that sometimes some holy fathers and mothers, etc., they can have different views. Like I had views, I'm not saying that I'm a holy father, I'm just saying, I had views 20 years ago, which I don't have now, or I look at them differently. As one develops, especially the more that someone has contact with people, the more they begin to change and become a bit more elastic. Like I was much stricter in certain things, as I said in the beginning. Lay people in general are very judgmental. Monastics can be judgmental too if they're in monasteries, if they're not mind their own business. But the priests who have to deal with people continually, they begin to become more softened and what's called more, they use what's called economy in their dealings with people. Contraception could be an example. We'll come to that next time. It could be um, divorce. Christ says you never divorce unless it's for fornication. There's all these different things that occur. Uh, and the, like, for example, 
people that are divorced shouldn't really get remarried. But yet the church has second marriages and third marriages, up to third marriage. But what does it do that if Christ says you must never marry a divorced person? If you're divorced, you shouldn't get remarried. Or if you are not divorced, but you're not a divorced person, you shouldn't do that either. But the church does that. And there's reasons for all that. And as time goes on on these talks, we're going to be, we're going to be covering a lot, of that, a lot of that material. Now, if sexual attraction between male and female is normal, and someone wants to become a monk or a nun, I remember when I used to go to Greece, they're more obsessed over there, but some people there, they would say, it's unnatural, it's abnormal. In the beginning, I used to become a little bit um, surprised with such uh, comments, but they were really, really um, uh, things that go that, 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 that sexual relations is normal and anyone who does not partake of them is abnormal. And my answer to that is, if I, the same person got up to me now, I would say, correct, you are correct. A life where someone doesn't, is not married and therefore does not participate um, in that, it is unnatural. What do you think of that? And then someone said, but you're a monk. Are you saying that you're unnatural? Well, in a way, yes. But what, does, what do I mean? Abnormal. It's not a nice word, but in why we say it's like it's not normal. And the answer to that, just in case some of you get upset and think that I'm speaking contrary to the Orthodox Church, it is abnormal. It's kind of unnatural in that these people who deny their natural instinct are doing something which is unnatural, but I think a better word to use so you can understand it better, it's what's called supernatural. And what does supernatural mean? It means rising yourself above nature. In other words, people who decide that they do not want to become married and participate in that life where they are allowed to do something which God has um, ordained to have marital relations, then that person is above nature. That's what I said. Maybe the word abnormal, I wanted to, I, I said abnormal, unnatural to provoke you, but to, to think about it. But that's what it is. It's supernatural. So now I would say to those people, yes, you are right. If some of you had a child who was, had a AIDS, let's just say. AIDS is a good one. And there was a doctor who was dedicated. He really wanted to find a cure for AIDS. Now, for us, I don't know, some of you have not been, you know, some of you might have had experiences that people and had people die or have suffered from that. I'm not talking about you people. I'm talking about, talking about the people who have never really experienced someone of their own suffering from AIDS. A person who has someone suffering from AIDS or the person themselves is suffering from AIDS and has been told you haven't got that type, you've got the other type, which means you're going to be leaving this world, those parents or relatives or husband or wife or mother or father, whoever has this person that's sick, 
would be hoping and hoping and hoping for a cure. They find out that there's a doctor in France, say. This doctor, very famous doctor, who's dedicated, he's married, he's dedicated to finding a cure for AIDS. And these people, who have never, as a, never, never worried about AIDS before, but now they're worried because someone's got it, Maybe the same people who would say that monasticism is abnormal and unnatural, maybe even them, when they find out that there's this doctor in France who does not sleep with his wife because he's so dedicated he finds that to be a distraction, he's so dedicated he doesn't want to waste time and he's focused on finding that cure, and some doctors are like that, by the way, they're so dedicated those things don't interest them, that's okay. Congratulate, what a fantastic doctor. But when the, if a monastic does it, or as I said, monk, nun, priest or whatever, that has dedicated their life so as not to be distracted, then that's not right. But the doctor, it's okay because I want them to find the cure for my son, daughter, husband, wife, child, whatever, etc. So that's just an example. Now, the one with the big flippers, as you know, that, um, that swimmer, the one that's retired, Ian Thorpe, with the big legs or big feet, whatever he's got, that makes him really fast, and, like, and all those Olympic people, did you know that they're also told by their trainers not to indulge in those things? Because it's distraction, it doesn't allow them to train properly, you know, when they're going for their big game, or oh, boxers and other people in this world, that's okay, because they're going to get a gold medal for Australia, or for America, or for England, or whatever. That's okay. They're not abnormal, because they're doing it for good reasons. But the monastics are doing it for stupid reasons. But anyway, that's the, that, that's the logic. We'll come, we'll come back to that as time goes on. Christ himself says, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Matthew 19, line 12. In other words, he who is able to stay unmarried, let him do it. Some people think that it's a gift, that God gives it. So if you've got the gift, you can do it. If you haven't got the gift, you haven't. It's up to the person themselves who wants to do that, to deny what's natural to them. Not the fact that God has given it to some and not to others. That's unfair because, as we'll find out, the unmarried life is superior to married life. Don't get too offended about that yet. We'll come to it in a minute. But then it's unfair to say that that person was given the gift from God to lead that beautiful life and the other person was not given that gift. So, therefore we have to say that it is up to our free will which way we want to go. Now, St. John Christum says, if the unmarried life is better, which will come why in a minute, we don't, doesn't mean that we're saying that marriage is bad and celibacy is good. Marriage is good, says St. John Christum, but celibacy is better. St. John Chrysostom goes on and says, you're not choosing between good and evil. In other words, if you don't get married, that's good. If you do get married, that's evil. What you're choosing, he says, is from better and best. 
That's good to get married, but it's better not to, as we see from St. Paul. If, well, here it is here. If you, if you marry, you have done well. If you stay unmarried, you've done even better. So St. Paul says, it's good to get married, but it's better not to get married. Okay? So we have to be careful of that and not to say the church puts down marriage when we'll see later as time goes on. The church did not put down marriage, but the church even compared marriage to Christ and the church. As St. Paul, he writes in his epistles that like Christ is to the church, that's the same as the man is with the woman, which will, that, that will be for future talks. And here's a quote. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, those who had lost their husbands, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Well, how are you? What's St. Paul? Even as I am. St. Paul was unmarried. And he encouraged the Christians and said, it's better to do what I'm doing. But, he goes on to say, if you cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What passion? What passion is he? What is he? What is Saint Paul speaking about? Yes, the correct, the sexual passion. So, interesting. So Saint Paul says, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we understand it. Saint Paul says, I want everyone to be like me, unmarried. But if you can't brackets, you don't want to, if you're, because other saints had passion as well, but they denied it, and they fought against it. Some people say, I can't fight it. That, that, that's okay, that's your business. It's all our business, isn't it? So we all got freedom. God does not force someone to become single, married, monastic, nun, priest. There's nothing this forcing. It is our free choice. And he said that if you cannot exercise self-control, see that? Just that line in there means, someone can read that and say, oh, that means that they weren't given the gift that Christ said. You know, it's given to someone else. No, they just, they themselves don't. We had, we had saints that fought fierce battles with the, with the sexual passion. Like, I mean, we had Saint Benedict who threw himself on a bush, thorn, um, bush, uh, rose bush and rolled around in it until he was bleeding. We had other saints that put their hands in fires so as to kill the passion. So don't think and, and say, oh, they were given the gift. I can't see having one hand as being the gift. Now we come to this part. St. John emphasises that when someone wants to remain a virgin, to dedicate themselves to God, they're not doing that because they don't, it says here, not merely in, uh, so as to avoid involvement with a husband. What does that mean? What does St. John mean? Not avoiding involvement with a husband. Unfortunately, there are some people who have an aversion because of what we said before, TV, way, the way they were introduced. Sex education, for example, to children. I mean, I've dealt with people, confessing people, who were, who were introduced to sex, sex education very young, and they became disturbed. Their whole view of, of um, sex became really fearful. And just, just this, this is where these, they don't like using negative terms against other people like secular, but to me they're just these nutcases who actually believe that they have to introduce themes, adult themes, 
to children at a young age, whether it's on homosexuality, which they have their agenda of whatever, you, you know what their agenda is, or just the whole thing. And, you know, kids in general don't want to hear those things. You know, a child that's still got a doll and is brushing their hair, all of a sudden is going to be told about reproduction and sexual intercourse, etc. These things are just way beyond, and they say, oh, no, it's good for the child because they learn a lot and they don't become disturbed because in the past they weren't taught and they became disturbed in, in, in that. Well, you know, in the villages, Russia, Greece, whatever, they never knew. A lot of times people didn't know up to the marriage time. But uh, I don't think that there existed the amount of sexual problems as there exist today in our enlightened society where it's everywhere, in school, magazines, books, videos, uh, everywhere and everywhere, it's all there, and therefore we should be living in a time where there should be hardly no sexual hang-ups, but this is the time when we have the most. Now, some can say, oh, that's because in the old times there was no way of measuring, there was no way of, you know, keeping statistics of how many of those women in the villages or men um, were disturbed. Well, I remember my, mom, my mother, she was born around 1925, and she told me things like, um, I never, we never knew the word depression. I only learned depression when I came here. I never knew. No, people didn't have depression. People can say they didn't open up. You know, when someone's depressed, it's very hard to hide. After a while, it comes out, as you know from a lot of the information that's coming out now, it comes out. They become dysfunctional, etc., etc. Don't, you know, like, there were a lot of problems in the old days, ignorance and things which will come to, but in general, let's just say there is some truth that people didn't know what depression was or people didn't know what sexual dysfunction was, etc. But now, with this all this literature that exists and all this material, one can say that we should live in a time and there's no sexual problems, I believe, and I'm sure you would know, uh, all you do is look at a newspaper and um, impotency and this problem and this and sexual dysfunction and that problem and sex therapists and this and that and that and that. And that's, uh, you know, like, um, I don't know if that's, if that's what they think is... Uh, if they believe that we live in a time whereby those problems are less because everyone's enlightened, then I believe that somehow... They must have been making model aeroplanes. They got the super glue on their eyes. They wiped themselves, and they can't open their eyes, and they're just basically permanently blind or something. Um, so, it is wrong. It's a sin for someone who has an aversion to marriage has an aversion to the sexual relations, etc., that wants to become a monastic so as to escape that. That is not what people become monastics for. And unfortunately, there are monasteries, there are people who want to go because they've got social anxiety, they've got anxiety to do with all that because of the disturbances, as I said before. Look, we've got here, um, I think I've said most of them, the personality disorders, there's a lot of people that have a lot of problems and therefore they actually have a, um, what's it, repulse, they're repulsed by it. 
And they say, oh, I want to become a monastic. And that's what a lot of people do. They say they want to become a monastic. And some of them do go for it and things like that. That's not right. One nun, I remember she told me, an abbess, she goes, and St. John Climacus, actually, she obviously got it from there, great saint, he goes, when it's a virtue is when you have the natural instinct towards the opposite sex, but you deny it for God's sake. You deny it. If you haven't got the instinct, St. John Climacus says, there's no virtue. Okay, we do read in the Holy Fathers that some people naturally are not inclined to it. They just, by natu uh, naturally, they are what's called chaste. They're not attracted to those things. That's fair enough. That's just, that's the way they were born. But one can say that they're not going to receive the same reward as someone who has the natural urge, but denies it, struggles, etc. That's not the same. St. John Climacus makes that clear. Just like some people naturally are meek. They don't get angry. And there's someone else who gets angry all the time. But that person f struggles to force himself, and he suffers to, or she suffers, not to get angry. Spiritual struggle. That person will receive a reward from God. The other person won't receive a reward. It might be other rewards, but not a reward because they're not struggling. It's not a virtue. Therefore, it's not a virtue. There's no, you don't get a crown. A crown for what? If you're naturally, you're, you, know, you don't say anything, you don't get angry, and the other person blows up every minute of the day, or just that's, that's where the virtue is. And that's why we get mistake. We say, I went to church today and there was this person and they were really meek and humble and, I, oh, they're a saint. And I went up to them, and someone went up to them and told them off and they didn't say anything. He's a saint. Oh, and another person on the other side of the church, someone went up to him and said, don't stand there, and that person got really angry. So, who's the, but then he contained himself, said sorry, whatever. Who's the saint? The one on this, this side of the church, which is the walking dead. Who gets the, um, the crown? The one who? That's correct. The one who actually is struggling with their passions. So, that's why we, we misunderstand a lot of times um, we misinterpret people, situations, and we'd like to think of them in our own way, but it's not right. Uh, as I said before, some people have got personality disorders. They actually don't get on with people. They go, well, if I get married, uh, I'm not going to be able to do it. Because marriage is, a, is where you really have to have a strong character, even though people don't understand that. They go, marriage is easy, you just do it. To be married, you have to have a strong character. You have to endure. We're gonna, and we're going to do that in future, future talks, husband and wife relationships, quarrelling, etc. It is really, really difficult. Some people have got what's called personality disorders, which is they, don't, they can't live with people. They can't relate to people. And therefore they go, I'll go and become a monastic. It's... And people can think that I'm holy because I don't, I'm denying my natural urge when a lot of times there is no urge because the person's repulsed. 
So, you know, that is not why we become monastics. We become monastics because we want to be with God, we want to struggle, etc. We want to become holy. St. John says, whether single or married, we can all pursue holiness and seek the kingdom of heaven. Both. But the church does teach that the monastic life is easier. Let's see what St. Paul actually says. But I want you to be without care, he says. I don't want you to have the cares of this world. He who is unmarried cares for things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So that person who's not married cares about the things of God. Well, that's what he should be doing. Remember the ten virgins in the, in the gospel? Five were wise, five were foolish. The five that were wise were virgins. The other five were also virgins. But that wasn't enough just to be virgins. They had to also have what's called virtue. So here... St. Paul says, if you want to remain unmarried, yes, but you have to be caring about how to please God. But he who is married cares about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. She should. doesn't mean that they do that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I have put a leash on you, in other words, I'm not forcing you, I'm telling you this so that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And this is what I've written here, the quote, and I underlined without distraction. That word without distraction is the key to people's misunderstanding. Do people understand what is the misunderstanding? What's this that, oh, I see, if St. Paul is saying not to get married, he's implying that's because sexual intercourse is evil, is this, is that. But that's not what St. Paul says. He says, I want you to stay unmarried so that you can be... What's that word? I underlined it. Undistracted. That is what monasticism is, is to remain undistracted so as to serve God even more. Married life is good. Monastic life is even better. Not because sexual contact is bad, but that you can not be distracted in all the things of married life. Married people are distracted. I deal with them a lot and I can say they are extremely distracted by everything. Not just talking about the sexual aspect, everything. They are very distracted people and it's difficult. But there's reward there, of course, because if you're forcing, if you're distracted all the time, and then all of us, and you try and say, no, I'm going to focus, I'm going to focus. Oh, children crying. Husband's coming home, this or that, or wife, or whatever. All these things, fighting, quarrelling. And then you force yourself, force yourself, to read a section of the Bible, to pray. But you really force yourself, while for monastics, ding, 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 it's easier, it's part of life. 
that time. It's like a, like school, you know, school as you all know, period one, bzzz, period two. Bzzz. I mean, you've got a, a thousand kids in the school. A lot of them are slothful. A lot of them are lazy. A lot of them can't even pick up their feet because most of the time they're malnutritioned or they've got problems or they're, or they're um, drugged out of their minds. But yet they, they keep to the period one, period two, period three. But why? It's a way of life. It's a timetable. Bang, 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 bang. The same in the monastic life. It's like that. This, and then that prayer, and then you go there, then you do this, then you do that, then you do this. It's, it's easier. But in the married life, there is no bzz bzz. Because the person who does the bzz bzz is the babies a lot of times. <laughs> they will tell you what time you will pray, and they will tell you what time you're going to have a shower, and they will tell you what time you're going to go to the toilet. I mean, I've spoken, I've spoken to them and I go, I can't even go to the toilet. That's how bad it is. Well, if they can't go to the toilet, they can't do prayers, they can't hardly do anything, so it is difficult. Does that mean we're putting it down? St. Paul and St. John do not put marriage down. They simply say that it is a life which has a lot of distraction. Any questions on so far what we've said? Yes. People are their own. Yeah. Your question is how do we reduce how do we reduce the distraction? Is that your question? Yes. Yes. But people, but people are their own enemies. People are their own enemies. What do I mean by that? They create distractions. For like, for example, they want their children to do ballet and sport and karate and jiu-jitsu and a pole vaulting. And I don't know what else that could be there. Maybe even wood chopping for the Easter show. But then they, 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 they make big loans, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's a lot of pressure on the family. They just create more problems and cause these distractions. You can be wise and simplify life to have less distractions. Yes, you are correct. That is it reduce or distract. When I deal with married people, I always go through their lifestyle and say, okay, that's a distraction, that's a distraction, that's a Get rid of those things. They're not necessary. And we will go through that. But, you know, like people got any ideas? You, you people tell me. Tell me some distractions that you think that are unnecessary in married life that we can get rid of, yes? The cinema. Well... I would say that as you're watching people having their eyes gouged out, it's really a bit hard to pray at that time. And it's also really difficult to be thinking, not only just to be praying, even though St. Paul says pray without distraction, but it's just in general, it clouds your mind up. And that is a very big distraction. You know, t TV is a distraction. Um, a lot of uh, things, people say, well, if we don't do that, then what's it to do? People think it's that life will be boring. In other words, if we go to the cinema, our life is exciting, even though all you do is go stand outside of the cinema and you'll see some very, very sad faces coming out because most of them are depressed. Once they've gone to the cinema, I should know, I used to go and what happens then? Some of them even go to another show, just can't get enough. They might even go to a video shop and get some videos and watch it all night. It's what's called it cannot stop to be distracted. 
People actually have conditioned themselves to be distracted. That's why I'm very careful. Some priests say when you meet someone and they're watching a lot of video, listen to a lot of music, you've got to say to them, stop, cold turkey, bang. I used to think that as well, but I don't think that now. Because a lot of times you can make a person go crazy because they actually are used to that. They are actually used to it. And you've got to slowly get them off. What's called, what's called like detoxification. You know, like drugs, people come off slow. You don't just stop a drug addict immediately because they can become sick and die. The same with people with a lot of distractions. Anyway, people in general love distraction. Why love distraction? A lot of times we're running away from our conscience. A lot of times people are disturbed. Not everyone is because they've done sin. Some people are disturbed, they've got a lot of trauma, and they don't want to think about it. They don't want that trauma to come up. They don't want to think, they want to repress it. So they use music, films, sports, entertainment, going out, drinking, drugs, whatever they can to suppress that trauma. There's a lot of reasons. We can't judge everyone and say, oh, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad. That's not what we're here to do. But there, are, there is a problem with the, um, with the um, distractions. Just two points. A question from our friend here and just another point. Don't get mixed up. Um, don't get um, confused if I make reference to things like, um, oh, that person's nuts or whatever. It doesn't mean that I am putting down, you know, mental illness, because I believe, firstly, that we all have mental illness to some degree. Some less, some more. We actually, we actually have some saints who actually became, who, were meant, who had mental illness, some had depression, some had um, a lot of problems, some had social anxiety. When I was talking before about social things that some people got social anxiety and they want to become monastics it's that is and i spoke negatively about it doesn't mean i'm putting down people that have got social anxiety i'm putting down the concept of the person believing that by going to a monastery he's going to be better off because he's not going to have to deal with people in the monastery it can be worse especially in a in a monastery where you there's a lot of people so don't get that confused because someone someone once said to me um um not that they, they understand me because they know where I'm coming from, but they said you, it may come across that you're putting down people that have got mental problems, which I, which I don't. We can be saved with mental problems. Um, and I did say in a couple of talks before that sometimes mental problems is God's way of bringing a lot of us to his kingdom because of the pride that we've got. Mental illness is really, really um, humbling. There are, of course, times when certain mental problems do cause someone not to be able to get married. It doesn't mean that because of that, that the person's doomed. But there are, you know, you'll see later on that church fathers did speak about that, you know, and I've read a lot of um, modern-day fathers that say that there are certain problems that people have got that could have a form of schizophrenia or something like that, whereby... If they get married, they can give it to their children. And a lot of times those marriages can become disastrous. It does mean that we're putting the person down. So, we... Ah, oh, the question. Yes, your question is. Question Good question. Is, um, when you have the example of the two people in church, um, you'll get your people involved. 
higher reward than uh, a monastic who doesn't have as many distractions in their life. If the person's been distracted in a married life and they're not struggling against those distractions, doesn't mean that they're, that they're perfecting, they're not perfect, well, there's no reward. So God looks at the amount of struggle that the person is doing to overcome those distractions, the amount of struggle he or she is doing to be joined with God through prayer, through struggle, how they repent, how they humble themselves. Um, and therefore, if if we use, you know, have we got killer jewels and all that, I mean, I don't like that, that, that analogy, but, for example, if we've got this person who's a lay person, and we've got this person who's a monastic. This person puts in, I don't know, let's just say um, out of a scale of 1 to 100, he puts on 70 points or whatever of his uh, forcing himself, his energy, his whole being into obtaining a, you know, his spiritual life. This monastic, who's in a better environment, puts in 30 or 40 all because he's a monastic, it doesn't mean that he or she is going to become, is going to get a greater reward than this person over here. And that's why the example of Saint Anthony, whereby he started to think to himself that maybe he was, you know, he had reached a really high level of spirituality. He fell into some pride and God enlightened him and said, go to a town and go and visit a certain, what was it again? You said it before. Uh, shoemaker. shoemaker. So he goes there and he says to the shoemaker, tell me about yourself. He goes, nothing, I'm just a shoemaker. And he goes, no, 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 tell me, tell me. He goes, no, no I'm just an ordinary shoemaker. He goes, I want to know about your life. And he goes, well, I give, if I remember right, one third of my money I give to the church and one third I give to the poor and one third I keep for myself and I live with my, with my wife. Um, uh, we don't fight. I can't remember the exact story. And then St. Anthony said, you know, he got rid of that thought that lay people, people that aren't monastics, are low down or that they're not going to receive re reward. And he said to himself, he's greater than me because it's the circumstances that we're in. For example, leading a, uh, a Christian life in Russia during communism was far Diff, far more difficult than leading a spiritual life in Russia before communism. Before communism, you could go and baptize your children, you get married, you can go to church. Yes, you might be mocked or whatever, but it was easier. But those who lived orthodox lives in that or under the Turks for 400 years, a lot of large parts of Greece were under the Turks for 400 years. Northern Greece and I think Serbia and that were for 500 years. Those people found it difficult and they were given great rewards. So it's not enough just to wear black and become, um, uh, you know, be a monastic and say, I am the greatest, right? But to actually be struggling. And that's why when I went once to Manathos, I've given you this example, when I went and visited the, the Father Paisios there, who, uh, they, you know, Holy Elder, a lot of books written on him, a lot of books, and... Um, I went to visit him once, and he told me that, that particular uh, story which disturbed me but helped me. And from then on, I really looked at things. It was so simple, but it changed my whole attitude to understanding what is spiritual life and how God judges. 
And he said to me, which I've already told you, but some of you haven't been here before, so I'll say it again. He said to me, um, I don't know how God's going to judge me. You know, he might judge me very, um, very um, strictly, you know, and he might judge a lay person less than me. And then he said to me, you're wondering why? I was protected a lot and I was helped a lot. I had holy fathers around me, spiritual people. But yet, in God's eyes, I don't know if my struggle is the same as someone else's struggle. And I go, I can't understand. To me, it was like one eye was going that way. One eye was going, oh, I felt like it was like it was making me crazy. I didn't, I didn't know what he was talking about. Because in my mind is that, maybe what, what you've got there is monastics. I wasn't monastic, I was a lay person. Monastics are the highest, the greatest. And this is when I first entered the church. This was in 1980, 1983 or 84 when I first met him, 24 years ago. So I was, you know, doesn't mean I know a lot now, but I know more than what I knew then. And I didn't understand what he was talking about. And actually, even when I left, I still didn't understand what he was talking about. And it took me a few years to actually one to click into what he was saying. Because he said to me then, which I still didn't understand, he said, I might put in this much effort in my spiritual life. That much. Because this person over here, could be even a lay person, can put on this much effort. But this person, he said, could be sinning by killing people. Because he was taught to kill people from young. Quite crude, when one can say, like, really, what kind of an example is that? Look, sounds far out, but he, that's true. Some people, by nature, uh, through the way they've been brought up or whatever, you know, You've got young girls that were brought up to be uh, prostitutes. You've got others, or boys too now, and we've got others who um, were taught from young, like some of those Muslim people. You know, they're taught from young to hate and kill. Not all of them, but the ones that we know about, the ones that are in another world. They, and he said, they could be um, killing 10 people a day. They, that's what they do. They just kill people, people all the time. But then they repent. And then they begin to struggle. And then when, you know, when they're struggling, they, put in, they have to put in so much of their strength, asking God, please help me. I don't want to do it. I don't want to kill someone. I don't want to do that. And they do it. But in one day, they might kill only three instead of the ten that they usually do from their struggle. He said, in, in God's eyes, they could, be much, they could be higher than me. After a while, I understood what he was talking about. God looks, as St. John Christum says in his um, homily at Easter, God looks at the disposition. God looks at the heart. You can say to someone, oh, he's not even doing anything in the spiritual life. But we don't know the person's heart because that person can just be out of it, distracted, um, passionate, just out of it. And, but in his heart... He has that thing. Once I met a drug, a, a person that was on drugs, and um, uh, this person I was speaking to him, and this person was, you know, yahooing, and that he was um, a cool person, etc. You know, the, the whole thing about it. And um, he, uh, and he goes, oh, you know, I love being out of it and all, all that type of stuff. And then I uh, somehow I got to him nicely because you don't attack them. In, you know, in, in a way, you even go along with them a bit so you can then get their 
um, what's the word called? Get their um, confidence, and then you then you can enter a bit better. And I and and he said to me, "Oh, so much I want to stop. So much I want to stop." Have you ever told anyone that? I've never told anyone that. But so much I want to stop. So that person who, you know, takes drugs continually and is out of it, and when he's drugged could even do crimes, etc., 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 etc. Who knows how much he does? But in God's eyes, he looks at that heart. Then we've got orthodox Christians a lot of times who are in the church, have got, have got everything. And I've met quite a few and you speak to them and sometimes you go, you, go, you know, you've got that passion. For example, you put your wife down. Let's just say that one. You know, you're always putting your wife down. Um, that's really wrong. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. But do you, do you want to get rid of it? Goes, yeah, yeah, like there's nothing there. There's nothing in that person's heart to actually even want to stop. He might have, he might be like that because his father did it. Like his father, for example, put down his mother from young. That's what this guy saw. He saw his mother being put down by the father from the time that he could remember. And it was every single day. That person learned that. You go, oh, well, he should stop. But he can't stop. But a lot of times it is really hard because that's how he was conditioned from young. But that's not the point. The point is that God's not going to look at what exactly you do. But God's going to look at how much you are trying to stop it and how much you really want to stop. And that is the secret in the spiritual life which a lot of people do not understand. They might see... Um, a woman of ill repute, we'll use that word, who could be doing her trade. And people say, oh, she's this and that and go on and on. Orthodox people too. Put her down, put her down, put her down, put her down. Rubbish her, she's going to go to hell. She's doomed. Oh, the demons love her and she's possessed. She's this, she's that and the demons are on her shoulder and all these type of things. But yet, but yet, do we know her past? Do we know whether she was kidnapped, like a lot of children are being kidnapped now and taken in and, 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 and uh, forced into that type of way of life and they are then put on to drugs, they can become addicted so they can keep on doing the trade for their slave owners just so they can keep on getting money so therefore that person will keep on going because they want the drug or if they leave they might get killed. We don't know any of these things of what's going on. But we sit and judge and judge and judge. So this is the point. The same with whether it's homosexuality or whether with this or whether with that. The only time we have a right to speak up is when the person says there's nothing wrong with what I do. So, for example, even if you see a priest doing something that's wrong, like St. Constantine's example, he said, if, you know, if, if I see a priest doing a sin... Because you know how the kings wore those mantles? He goes, I would cover this priest with my mantle so that no one will see the sin that he's doing. What does that mean? In other words, it means this. For example, I say to you, excuse me, I'm, I'm going to go for a break. And then I go back there to the restrooms. And then you see, coming out of the window, like a puff of smoke. And someone walks in and sees that I'm smoking. Then I go, oh, and I get embarrassed, I get caught out. People have no right 
than to go around and go, oh, he does this, he does that. He did. He, only time you have a right, because that could be a weakness. Some people, some people have problems. And, um, you know, that could be, have I, um, they've gone through problems anyway. There's all different things. Smoking is bad, we know that. But some people out of weakness, they smoke. We, we, the church understands that. And um, the only time that you can actually say something and go around and tell people and say that's wrong with that prison, if I stood here and said to you, it's all, it's all right to have, um, it's all right to smoke, then you can speak up. That's what we should do with fellow Christians. When we see them sin, it depends on that. They could have just fell at that moment. They could have had a, um, God allowed that. Not that God forced them to sin, but God allowed the temptation. They chose to do it. Because we, when we sin, it's our own choice. Because don't get mixed up and say, oh, God made me sin. God does not make us sin. Not even say the devil makes us sin. Remember the example of um, the monk in the monastery, it was a fast period, I think, and the monk was starving. And um, the abbot heard some pots and pans in the kitchen, went down there and caught the monk, and he was down there boiling some eggs at a time that he shouldn't be um, doing that. And then he, the monk, the abbot said, how dare you, this, you know, you know, you're not allowed to eat outside of the times, that's, that's, that's their rule. And then uh, the next day, because the kitchen was closed, he couldn't get access to the stove, he thought to himself, okay. So he got his key from his, you know, those how they have in the old, the old ancient monasteries, they've got keys that are as, you know, as big as um, a, um, a horse's brush, really, really big. So he got this big key, he put the egg on top of the key and put it over the candle to start to cook it because he was that much he wanted to eat. So then the abbot was enlightened by God and said, go and check, just in case. He walks in and he saw the monk over the candle boiling the thing and then the abbot said, what are you doing? Like, aren't you ashamed? He goes, oh, the devil made me do it. And then there was a voice in the room, which was the demon himself, and said, no, not even I thought of that. Right? <laughs> From that example... What the church is trying to teach us is that a lot of times, you know, we blame the demons, but a lot of times it's ourselves. We think of things ourselves. And we like to say, oh, the devil did it. My wife did it. My, my child made me do this, that, that, that. But we don't blame ourselves. You know, Christ, God didn't really, you know, God would have accepted Adam and Eve if they repented. You know, they did a big sin. They said, don't eat from that tree. The way God came to them, where are you? Really gentle voice, loving voice. Where are you? And they were hiding. And he goes, why are you hiding? He knew. But trying to make them to help them to repent. He didn't come like fire and brimstone and with a really thing. He came really gently. Um, and then they said, um, oh, the devil, uh, the snake made me do it, she said, Eve said. And then Adam said, oh, the wife you gave me made me do it. And then he banished them. He didn't banish them because they sinned, but he ba God banished them because they did not repent. That is the difference. So we have to uh, be very, very careful when we are judging circumstances. A lot of times we do not know everything. Only God knows 100% 
everything. God will judge us according to our sex, whether male or female, whether we are rich or poor, educated, uneducated, orthodox from young, orthodox not from young, where we were born, how we were born, our education, everything will be judged. He knows everything, circumstances, mental problems, emotional problems, every single thing will be looked at. But we don't understand that. So, did I answer your question? Did I answer it or did I go off track? I do that sometimes. Uh, so, in other words, um, that in God's eyes, the one who struggles the most, because God gives also his cross according to what one can endure. So, to the monastics, you don't think that because they're undistracted that their life is easy. They do have very fierce struggles. And the, and the lay people do too, but just that the lay people are more distracted, but... We will come to that as time goes on. Many theologians have overemphasised the value, there are theologians in the past and even today, who overemphasise the value of virginity and the sinfulness of the flesh, saying, you know, virginity is good, married life, well, you know, it's involved with those type of things and it's actually, you know, sinful, the flesh is sinful, like things that the Roman Catholics used to sell up, the flesh, the flesh is evil, and go on and on about it, and they really have some, some, a lot of them have distorted views. People have this view of that topic as being something which is undesirable, and they, I think, take it to the extreme. Um, but that's not how it is. I think I mentioned that before, that a lot of people, when they read the lives of saints, believe that married couples who became saints became saints because they abstained, that they lived like brother and sister. And people have that view, oh, they're saints because of that. Some did do that, but that's not correct. We have the, um, you know, in the Old Testament, we have other saints that had five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten children. I forgot which one it was, Saint Philaret, the almsgiver, Saint John, I get confused, but he had a lot of children. There's so many um, examples in Greece of holy priests that had 14, 15, 16 children. Now, if that particular theory is that that sexual relations is a hindrance, then those priests would be really the worst of them all. But that's not correct because a lot of those priests are very, very holy people. So that has to be eliminated from our brains. Holiness can therefore be achieved even with married couples, 100%. Now, because of this incorrect attitude, which existed even in the early days, there was a move around the year, I don't know when it was, but around the, the, the beginning of the 4th century, this thing, it probably was from before, where they wanted to ban all priests of being married in clergy. A monastic saint, he actually stood up at the first ecumenical council and said, no, that is not correct, that we should not do that and make it a rule that all clergy are to be unmarried. So that was interesting that he actually upheld the ordination of married men for those that want. How did the church then look at these people who put down marriage? Because there were people even in the times of the apostles that actually put down marriage and thought that uh, sexual um, relations are uh, 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 horrible and things like that. The apostles' canons, which say if a person is a priest or a, or a deacon on who puts down marital relations between men, men and women, he should be defrocked. In other words, he is not to be a priest ever again. That's how strict they were. 
If he's a lay person, like yourselves, for example, he's to be excommunicated. What does excommunicated mean? It means cut off from the church. That's how the ancient church viewed those who put down marriage. Now, that to me is very, very powerful. Completely, uh, some, for some people that might even be surprised. Go, oh, I never knew that. I thought the church was negative towards those type of things. There was another synod later on, a few centuries later, which is even stricter. Anathema to him who reproaches marriage. Anathema, cut off from God, cursed is he or she who puts down marriage, puts down uh, uh, the relationship between men and women in particular. That's why the church, very, very strict against the particular women who even from the beginning, out of piety supposedly, they used to refrain from relations with their husband and the church used to excommunicate them if they did not repent and stop that because, as St. John Chrysostom says, this is a cause for adultery. This can cause someone to fall into adultery. St. John Chrysostom says if men can't even hold themselves even when they're married and have, and have their, their uh, rights, how much more if they are denied their rights? And the same for the woman, by the way. But in general... Men are more inclined than women. Women, it doesn't mean that women are not, but men in general are more uh, sexually active than uh, women. And so some women out of piety, most of the time I think they just probably didn't, didn't like those type of things, or in their mind they wanted to be a monastic while they're married, a secret monastic, I don't know what they, you know, there are people like that even today who want to be, and they think, ah. Oh, I don't want to indulge in that because I'm too spiritual. I'm too holy. And they avoid those things and cause, as St. John Christum says, even goes to St. John Christum lived 1,600 years ago. He even got to the stage of going, there's quarrels about it, there's anger, there's fights, there's all these problems that occur when these things are done. And he said, it is evil and it should not be done. That's how the church looked at things. But, of course, the Roman Catholic Church... After a while, they went. They got to the stage where they banned all their priests of getting married. I don't know when it was. I, um, I got a feeling it was even before the schism with the Orthodox. Any questions on that so far? We will be. We will be. Yeah, we will be um, talking more about um, abstaining and fasting, etc. In later talks, I just wanted to touch on it. Yes, please. Yes, good, very, very good question. This was something I wanted to discuss, but I won't do that. I will, I will answer your question, just in case. Some people might not come again um, for some reasons, whatever. It was a topic that I wanted to speak about. The church's view on marriage is very, very great. Because Christ said, no one is allowed to separate the couple. 
when Christians that were, for example, both pagan in the, in the earlier centuries, they were both pagan, they weren't Christians, but they were together, they had a family, they had, you know, man and wife, they were, they were together and um, they were married in the way of the, the, the Roman Empire in those days, but, but they weren't Christian. One of them, for example, converted and became orthodox. St. Paul really was extremely strict of causing a problem between the couple. He did not want that couple to separate. It was that important. The church did not interfere to the point of making couples to separate. And St. Paul said to the woman, for example, if her husband was a pagan, he said, if your husband tolerates your Christian faith, if he doesn't try to force you to go and sacrifice to idols, if he's not trying to make you do things which are against God's law, like, you know, strict things against God's law, um, you are to stay with him. Do not separate. This is the church's view, not to separate. Even when people are living together and have a family, it's really hard to separate because it's like it's a family and you can't do that. Now, on your question, which was what happens if one of the spouses is non-Orthodox, but by the way, your question can be actually extended, that's not only that, there also this problem happens when they're both Orthodox. What happens if, let's just say we've got a pagan person that was a, a non-believer, non-Orthodox, whatever, and a person who's Orthodox, and there's times of the fast, there is, um, and then the other person uh, wants to indulge in his rights, or her rights, the orthodox person can gently and with care try and encourage the other person to say that this is a time for me that is not, you know, permitted. And if they do not want to refrain, then the person has to give in because St. John Christum says that, he talks about that question, so as to avoid the possibility of adultery, so as to avoid friction in the family, the other person has to give in because adultery is worse than, um, than breaking the fast. It's worse. The other problem occurs when it could be an orthodox person, two orthodox people, and both go to church, both are faithful, but one becomes weak during the fast or during a day which is, in, which, which is not permitted. The same thing occurs. Encouragement. Let's, you know, come on, let's, this is a time, this, this, this and that. But if the person has, it does not, can't refrain, then, then that has to, again, the spouse, whether it's the husband or wife, has to give in so as to avoid problems. This is the way the church thought. They, the church did everything in its power to... Uh, avoid greater sins. What happens in the case now where there could be an orthodox person who lost themselves, left the church for a while, and then 
met someone and then they had children. What happens to that case where the other person's not even orthodox? So that one person's orthodox, the other person's not orthodox. Now, some of you might say, oh, they have to separate, they have to do it. Well, you see, this is the problem, that it is still in a way, not in strict way as the, in an orthodox family, but it's still a family. It's still a man and a woman that have children. And I know, for example, a Serbian bishop in, uh, in Serbia who, he came across that problem because of communism some of them weren't married. Some were unbaptized. There was all like a whole mess over there. Some were baptized, some weren't baptized. Russia, the same. I was reading some epistles from some elders in Russia that had that come across the question. Some were orthodox, some were not orthodox. It was all over the place. But, he, but they all have the same thing. Do not separate for the sake of the family because it is still a family and we have to try to bring the other person, not by force, with gentleness, to the orthodox faith. But for the priest to come along and say, you must separate, is, is, um, can be more damaging than good because that person, whether it's the spouse, the non-orthodox spouse, or the children, will hate the church. And that's why the church was very careful in the beginning. You don't just go and say to someone willy-nilly, oh, you separate. Your husband's a pagan, your wife's a pagan, you separate. Oh, but I've got three kids. Bad luck. You know, that doesn't matter. Separate. It's a sin. It's this. It's that. Uh, if the church did that in its first centuries, no one would have become Christian because the church would be viewed as, as separating uh, marriages. We know, as I've said before, that one who's orthodox should never leave the church. You do not leave the church. Some say, well, if you've got to be orthodox to be saved, that means those who are orthodox are not going to be saved. There were some um, Protestants in America, and they go around and, and say that God uh, hates America and God hates America because of their passing of laws in favour of homosexuality and that the war in Iraq is bad and therefore all the soldiers that died in Iraq, it's their punishment from God, and they go around to funerals of these soldiers and say it's um, God's punishment and God hates this and God this and God and it's all like really really bad and this reporter had access to them this is only like a family by the way just one one big family and they are Baptists of some description and the reporter went there and he asked the one of the girls the daughters of the of the people there who was around 19 20 because am I going to go to hell? And she goes, yeah, yeah, you're going to go to hell. And she was laughing. Yeah, you're going to go to hell because you don't follow God and you're going to go to hell. And he goes, well, but why are you laughing? I'm going to go to hell. Because you are. And that was her attitude. And this is um, uh, really uh, bad because um, those people actually are putting um, Christianity down. And I remember reading a book, Starit Silyanos, a Russian saint, and in there there's a description, there's a, something about some monks they were talking, and someone came along and said, all heretics are going to go to hell, like that. And then the saintly, the monks there said, um, a person, a person who is with God, a person who has love, can never wish someone 
to go to hell. Can never even conceive in his mind for someone to be in hell. Whether someone goes to hell or not, it's God's judgment. But for us to say it like that, and some people go, the writings of the saints say that people who aren't orthodox are called heretics. And some priests say, don't, don't say those words. And then the answer to that is, but they are heretics, so why can't we say those words? If they're heretics, the fathers of the church use those words that they are heretics, they're not following the orthodox faith. Why can't we use it? Because when the fathers of the church used those, used those words, they used it with full love. They used them in a way that was with pain, a way where they wanted the person to come to their senses. They prayed for the person or the group of people. But we, a lot of times, say it with not one ounce of care about the other person and say, you're a heretic, like that. And you're going to go to hell. And like those people over there, the Baptist ones in America, and others as well. And I'm talking about the Orthodox most of all. We got to be very careful of how we judge others. Those Baptists believe that they are the only ones in the whole world that will be saved, just that family. Just that family. Because they are the only ones that talk against homosexuality. It's like every single page of the New Testament is gays are bad, gays are horrible, gays are this, gays are that. That's not what the gospel is about. There's a lot of things in there. That is in there as well. But these people just emphasise that. We have to be very careful how we look at others. And that's why a lot of the saints would never openly so easily say, even if someone was an orthodox, oh, you're going to go to hell. Because St. Paul says people will be judged according to their conscience. St. Paul says those who are outside the church will be judged according to their conscience. The question there is, well, if they're going to be, if they're outside the church, there's no judgment. They're going to go straight to hell, isn't it? But St. Paul says they're going to be judged according to their conscience. And this is where a lot of us get confused. And we will, as time goes on, speak more and look at the writings of the saints on that. If saints, for example, used to, maybe in the times of when the Catholics, for example, were um, mass converting Orthodox, killing them, this and that, there, there's, there's times that happened in Serbia, it's happened in the other areas, Ukraine, all that, and converting. And then the church stood up and said, that the, these people are heretics. They are not orthodox. Salvation is in the orthodox church because they were trying to keep the people in the church and also to, to make them understand that these people are, uh, are, are teach contrary to the orthodox church. So there are times when the church is strict about the heretics and there's time when the church is less it depends on the dangers. It depends on the circumstances. So don't say that I'm uh, ecumenist, etc., etc. If you do think that, I'm sure those Baptists over in America would uh, welcome your limited view on people. And you know, there's even Orthodox groups, some old calendarist groups, who actually say that they are the only church in the world which will be saved. That they are the 
only ones. Unbelievable. There are two purposes for marriage. The first purpose, as we saw what St. Paul says, was the avoidance of sexual immorality. That was, that, was a, that was one of the purposes. And the other one was childbearing. Which one of the two are more important? Do you know? Yes? The first one. Correct. The avoidance of sexual immorality was the main purpose of marriage. That's the first purpose. St. John says, at the beginning, having children was necessary because... God wanted the earth to be populated. So that was one of the uh, reasons. And as well, in those days, people didn't understand the resurrection of the dead. A lot of the, the, well, the Jews believed that basically when they die, they die. And the only thing that they can do is as long as they have offspring, they have children, that they will then continue part of themselves. You know, people believe like that now, you know. When someone died, they go, oh, well, at least... You know, he will live on in his son or daughter or things like that. And these are limited. This is not... Um, uh, we, 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 with the New Testament, we have more developed because we now have resurrection. And it's not necessary... And plus the world's populated. And the church father says there's not that necessity like it was at the beginning to have children to that extent. So by having children, these they believe that they are leaving behind living images of themselves. And the greatest consolation for that person who was dying, or for their relatives, was that that person it will live on, as I said before, in their children. That's how the Jews looked at it. For example, in uh, St. Job, when he lost his children, when the devil got permission, anyway, that's another story, but uh, he lost all his children. And his wife said, curse God. Look what's happened. You, your children have died and, where is it? And your memory has perished from the earth. See, your memory is perished from the earth because you do not have children. So they believe that their memory will live on in their ancestors, in their um, descendants, sorry. And another one, King Saul said to David, don't, uh, where are we? Uh, swear to me, he says to David, that you will not destroy my seed, my children, and my name along with me. Because by saying, the king was saying, if you destroy my children, then I am lost. Because there'll be no descendants. And that's why we have the parable or the, or the teaching of the Jews in those days, which Christ, then someone came and said, there was a man, he was married, and the man died leaving no children, and then his brother married the wife, but then he died, and then she had no children. Then the next brother, next brother, and there were seven of them, and they all died, and this, this, that. So that was the, what was the purpose then? The purpose was when a man died without leaving children, it was looked at as being really bad because he will not continue in his descendants. So it was up to the brother to marry the, in the Jewish times, to marry the woman so as to give children on behalf of his brother. 
That's how they believed. When Christ came along, that's all of that was wiped out because we have resurrection. That's what counts. And that um, physical childbearing is not as important as spiritual, the bearing of fruit spiritually through our holiness of life. And that's why the monastics don't have a way and go, oh, if I, get, if I become a monastic, then I'm not going to leave any children behind, I'm not going to have my seed to go on and on. And they didn't, they said, well, that doesn't matter because it's resurrection. So that was the way the Jews believed in those days. So St. John therefore says that the reason for marriage is to avoid sexual immorality, that is to put out the fires of the body. That is the primary reason. He goes on to say, uh, well, here's a quote, Nevertheless, St. Paul says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. He doesn't, St. Paul doesn't say, um, if a man wants to have children or a woman wants to have children, they get married. He didn't say that as being the, the key. The key is if you cannot abstain, then get married. So that's the first reason and the second comes thereafter. If you have to choose between children and, and um, sexual immorality, in other words, Some people actually say, I want to get married, but I want to have kids, which is wrong. But according to St. John, well, you don't want to have children. That's a sin. But fornication is worse. Then get married, legally indulge in what you're allowed to permit by God, and at least you aren't sinning in the very big sin of not of falling outside of marriage. That is the most important thing. So the same act outside of marriage is deadly. It's mortal. It's wrong. It's bad. That's straight out. Within marriage, it's not a sin. St. John even says, in other words, if someone cannot abstain from satisfying the reproductive instinct and the natural urges, he is allowed to do so only through marriage. That's not shown on TV. That's, that TV is shown all different things there. So, in conclusion, childbearing is not put down, just in case you think it's put down. The saints are only emphasising the main point to marriage, which is the, uh, the sexual immorality, to avoid that. Okay, that's, I think we have um, come to the end. The, um, next time, God willing, what I want to speak about is how does one go towards marriage? You know, how do you get to know? Dating, not dating, how do you do it? We'll talk a little bit about arranged marriages, what's all that about, the attitude towards marriage and all that type of thing, and um, what does the church teach about that? So a lot of it will be on now, some of you might say, I'm, I'm married and therefore I don't have to know about how one goes about to get married. But that's wrong because it will help you understand that the problems in your marriage come from the fact that you didn't do the right thing in the first place for some of you. Not all of you, but some of you did not do the right thing in the first place. 
And it's important. And of well, if you've got children, you have to know the right thing for your children. How much say do you have in your children's marriage? What should you look at in your future son-in-law or daughter-in-law? What should a guy look like look for in a woman? What should a woman look for in a man? These are very, very important issues, and that's what I'm hoping to do um, in the next talk. Now, usually I try to cram everything into one talk, maybe even two talks, and I refuse to do that anymore because I, I really makes me nervous because we miss out on so much. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this topic properly, as much as to my ability, of course. I'm going to really sit down and work this topic out. So next time, in two months' time, it will be on um, spouses, etc., and how to, you know, dating and all those type of things, and how to choose a husband, how to choose a wife. And then after that, the two months after that, or whatever, maybe a month, who knows, will be uh, the uh, about husband and wife together, living together, and the problems and how to lead a holy life. Now, my apologies, I ask forgiveness if sometimes I don't present things properly. As I said, you know, I'm not an ecumenical council. I only can do things in my limited way. I might have made some um, wrong statements, I don't know, but that's why it's good that these things are being taped. Other people listen to it, my other priests, other people, and when they say, oh, look, that one's not really correct, that's good because we can delete that. That's not a, that's not a problem. I'm, I'm not here to say that I am, the, the, you know, I know everything. That's, that, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to steer you to the best of my ability, give you the um, orthodox teaching, and then it's up to you as well to read. And I'm going to be giving you books today for, um, as a gift, which I promised. Uh, and it, by the way, everything here is for free. Whoever wants to take things can take them. Up there, that's for sale. But, uh, this one it's called Marriage, a Spiritual Arena. I based the talk a lot today on the first few chapters, but on St. John Chrysostom. But this book has a lot of the questions on um, quarrels and divorce and contraception, adultery, abortion, etc. Very, very... When I read, first read this book, I go, this is a great book. I gave it to the bishop as well, our bishop, and he, um, oh, he was jumping for joy. He was really said, this is a very, very good book. And... Um, so you'll be, you'll be getting that book today. Are there any questions before we end? Yes, Ella. Um, I heard you, that's correct, and we're coming. We're, and we're coming to that. That we're saying what Saint Paul taught as being the primary reason for marriage is to avoid fornication. The Church looked at that sin really seriously. Of course, within the marriage, there will be uh, struggle, where the which we're going to come to that, where your husband will be your helper. And the wife will help the husband, the wife, the husband will help the wife in going towards salvation. All that will be um, covered. However, we can't ignore the fact that St. Paul 
and St. John Chrysostom do emphasise that. That's what I did today. And we will come out and we will start going on to the other things later on. It's a, but, but, but that is a point. I think that people don't realise how... By knowing that, people will understand the, the value of marriage and understand that these things outside of marriage are just no good. And I don't think that's... I mean, I'm not going to say I'm the only one, I mean, because if not, you'll see that yourself. I really, really object to the fact that it is not spoken about enough. Now, I don't know what they say in Russian, and I'm not in the Greek churches to know what they say there. If they do say it, fantastic, excellent, because that's what it's about. But if they're not saying that these sins outside of marriage is bad and the purpose of marriage, then there's something wrong. And then there is, it's really, really bad today where fornication is just prevalent completely. It's just out of control. So you have the problem, you want to, etc., then come to the marriage which is blessed by God. That was the emphasis today. But we will continue on to look at the, the other things, the other issues, the, the struggling, etc. All that will come to. Any other questions? Yes? See, some, some people believe that the fact that the church forbids uh, marital relations during the fast, it means that marital relations is bad. But the church also forbids milk during the fast. Does that mean that milk's bad? Don't tell your children that. It Does that mean that we don't eat meat? Is meat bad? Well, according to vegetarians it is, but not for the church. The church also says that a certain days you don't have oil if you want to be stricter. Does that mean oil is bad? Why does the church say not to eat those foods? Well, it's a well-known fact that now it's obviously seen that when you eat, like, for example, arthritis. Arthritis, they say, is the rich man's disease. What's it mean by that? It's a rich man or woman's disease because arthritis, you know, those joint pains, comes from too much meat. Wine is okay, alcohol is okay, but when you have too much of it, then it's bad. It becomes a distraction it could, and it makes you heavy. Too much food makes you heavy. When you don't eat as much, you can pray easier. The church says, okay, you people, we all know, you eat, you eat your meat, you eat your you know, cheeses and eggs and all these things that you eat. But let's have a period of time so we can devote ourselves to God and, you know, and by becoming lighter. Even the Buddhists know and even the Muslims know and so many others, they know that fasting is, makes the person light and therefore prays easy. I mean, even when I used to teach, I used to say to my kids, don't eat a lot before you study because the brain just becomes really dead. We all know when we eat, when we eat or when we eat too much, we feel sleepy. So when, you know, you've stuffed yourself and you go to pray, obviously what's going to happen is someone's going to find you in front of the icons on the ground, sleeping, because you become sleepy. So it's not that eggs is evil, meat is evil, sex is evil. 
we abstain. The church orders the, the abstinence as a way to help the person progress in their spiritual life. This is where people get confused and go, see, it's a sin. It's bad. I mean, you know, the ascetics, for example, or even the, the strictly speaking, on Wednesday and Friday, you don't eat till after 3 o'clock. After, I think, Vespers. Nothing. But, you know, we don't do that. But that's what some monasteries practice that. What? Because not even water, I think. Or the first three days of Lent, they don't have anything. Some people don't have water. I mean, I, I don't agree with it because, in, in, you know, they can do it if they live in a nice, beautiful, mountainous area in front of the sea or in the desert where it's clean air. But for us that have got children and have to run around buses and trains and not having water, it's a bit too much. Can I have a ticket to Central, like when you're half dead? <laughs> That's just um, overdone and you're at work and then people are typing and they, they're making mistakes and they're out of it and they fall on their computers and just stupid things. So you've got to have a brain to say, well, you know, with, with, with discernment. But does that mean because the church says for, don't have water, don't have food for, th- for three days, it's called the trimero in Greek, you know, three days, they're very strict in some of the monasteries, and some of them do that. But they're praying at the same time all day during the first, like services in Lent, the first three days of Lent, some of them are around um, ooh, 10 hours long or something like that. And the prayer, together with the fasting, makes the person strong. But there are people in the world who are actually fasting really strictly and they do a little bit of prayer and off they go to work. So it's really hard as you're doing your studies or you're going to work or you're jackhammering away and you might be able to have a little bit of prayer, but how much prayer can you do? Prayer and fasting together. But anyway, abstinence from sex is not because it's a sin, but because it, too much of that as well can be problems as well. So the church has this way of having this cleansing period, way of a person becoming closer to God. But St. John Chrysostom does say it doesn't mean that people who indulge in their sexual relations means that they are going to lose God's grace and they're gonna, they're, they're all these things which we'll come to later on. Does that answer your question? That's it. Any other last questions? Nothing? Christ is from the dead by death, has trembled in death, and knows the presence of life.